Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. to Talking Tudors episode 152. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger and I'm so glad that you could join me. As this is the first episode of the month I'd like to begin by thanking the wonderful patrons who continue to support this podcast and welcome patrons who joined the Talking Tudors family in March including Jessica, Corina, Nicole, Litza and Sarah. I'm so very grateful for your immense generosity and support. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. April's prize is a wonderful book and stationery bundle sponsored by Shaw House, a striking Elizabethan manor house built in 1581, and located in Berkshire, England. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of the month, I'll be chatting to Dr. Owen Emerson about a new exhibition that opened at Hever Castle entitled Becoming Anne, Connections Culture Court. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTudors. In other exciting news, if you've always been fascinated by the life and times of Anne Boleyn and have dreamed of learning from leading Boleyn experts, including Dr. Owen Emerson and Professor Susanna Lipscomb, from the comfort of your home, I invite you to join 365 Days with Anne Boleyn, a year-long journey of learning and discovery that I'll be leading in 2023. You'll find a full list of what's included and all other details on my website, I do hope you'll consider joining us on this unique and immersive learning experience. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited to welcome Emily Stevenson and Tom Roberts to the show to talk about travel, transculturality, and identity in Tudor England. Emily is currently a lecturer at Exeter College and a postdoctoral research assistant at the University of Oxford, working on the ERC-funded TIDE project, Travel, Transculturality and Identity in England, circa 1550 to 1700. 
Her research focuses on reconstructing the networks, both textual and social, which surround late 16th century English travel writers in order to examine the influence these had on their construction of travel texts. She's also interested in gender history more widely, especially the roles of women within these social networks and the ways in which they engaged with contemporary issues surrounding travel. Tom is a lecturer at Exeter College, Oxford, and a postdoctoral researcher on the ERC Tide Project. He's also a literary historian interested in Anglo-Italian exchange, translation, transnational theatre, and cultural and human migration to 16th and early 17th century London. His primary research focus is the Italian Commedia dell'arte and its English reimagination, which forms the focus of his next monograph. He also works on the city's stranger communities and the ways in which migrants navigated new environments and remodeled their cultural practices to the specifications of the city around them. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Tom and Emily. It's so lovely to have you both on the show. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. I suppose a really good place to start would be just with some introductions. So how about you, Emily? Would you like to go first and just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Thank you. Uh, So my name is Emily Stevenson um, and I'm currently working as a a postdoctoral researcher on the Thai project at the University of Oxford. Uh, So the project looks at travel and transculturality in the 16th century. Um, My research focuses on travel writing and travel networks. So I've been looking at how people knew each other and how they wrote about those connections uh, and how their wider social networks helped them write about the world in the 16th century. Brilliant. And Tom, over to you. Yeah, I'm Tom Roberts. I am a, a lecturer at Exeter College, Oxford, and I'm also a postdoc on the Tide Project with Emily. Uh, my work is broadly on Anglo-Italian exchange, literary and theatrical exchange, but I also look at migration to 16th and early 17th century London and the especially the kind of community of 
Italians that resided in the in the east of the city during the period. Friends of Thomas Cromwell, perhaps. Um, I've heard he was. Perhaps. I mean, yeah, there, there was a there was a church. We'll get on to that. But uh, oh, fabulous, a, excellent. I won't jump ahead. Then I get too excited sometimes. Um, so we we are here <laughs> to talk about a book that both of you have actually contributed to, which is called Keywords of Identity, Race, and Human Mobility in Early Modern England. So tell us a little bit about the aims and the objectives of this. So, so keywords, it follows the model of a classic work by Raymond Williams called Keywords, a Vocabulary of Culture and Society. And this came out in the 1970s. And it, it follows a rather a cultural rather than etymological approach to often vague or slippery terminology, things like you know, the, the word art or even the word culture. And, and Williams often highlights how the meanings of these words evolved over time and and also the certain kind of tensions and usage that arise in response to outside pressures in in the political climate, for example. So our keywords volume, keywords of identity, race and human mobility in early modern England, uh, which was published last year with Amsterdam University Press and it's available open access online. So please go and and have a read. It takes a similar approach to Williams Williams, to a selection of terms that were central to the, uh, the conceptualization of identity race, migration and transculturality in in the early modern period, uh, which was, of course, a a period of of travel and uh, kind of increased cross-cultural encounters and mobility. So the postdocs, um, this work actually began before Emily and I joined the project. So we started as PhD researchers a year in and Keywords was the very first project that everybody everybody else on the project, the three three other postdocs and our PI Nandini Das, Professor Nandini Das, they started very early on, on Keywords and they, they would go through all of their reading. Uh, there, are, there are historians of diplomacy, of material culture and also religion and, and the, the joint stock companies like the East India Company. Um, and and they go through all of their work and all their reading and they all came up with this, this pool of words that were being used to talk about race and migration and identity. And they pulled their collective, their vast collective knowledge, and uh, they wrote these individual essays on these terms uh, that did exactly, exactly that. They, they explored the tensions and the, the various ways in which usage evolved over time. I think one of the, the key reasons for undertaking this work was that the ideas of, of identity and race that we have today, and identity and rights and also power, they, they, they were really fermenting it period this this was this was when the these ideas were starting to emerge so in a way it, it, it was a project to also make sense of where we are now and um the yeah the the formative role that this period and these words played in the, arti- the articulation of, of identity um and rights uh, in subsequent periods it sounds absolutely brilliant and incredibly timely as you say and when i I was corresponding with Professor Das about something else. And when she suggested that maybe I'd like to chat to you guys about this project, I was so excited. I actually didn't know what angle to take because as you've just said, you cover so much and so many important aspects. But I suppose something that jumped out to me, I just thought it would be wonderful just to talk a little bit about what it was like to actually move countries and move cultures during the Tudor period. Yeah, it's one of the um, one of the things that's been really 
notable during our work on Tide over the last few years because the project's research has focused on travel and transculturality within England. But it's impossible to look at that without looking at the wider world. And and you realise when you start reading through continental texts, particularly, that England really isn't a well-respected country, let's say, for quite a long period of the 16th century. And it's a really notable contrast today that English isn't a world language and lots of European writers don't speak English and they don't see the need to learn it. And so in England, lots of continental texts are translated either into Latin or into English and then back again. So scholars in England uh, are part of this huge network of letter correspondence that crosses different national and religious and cultural boundaries. And they share knowledge all across well, but first continental Europe and then eventually across the world. And it's, I think, quite easy sometimes to think of England as quite an isolated nation state in an island in a little corner of the world, particularly in the second half of the 16th century. Um, but actually, it is part of this much wider community. But it's also that movement back and forth becomes a, quite a source of danger as well. So people who travel abroad and then come back to England are viewed with some distrust because why would you want to leave England in the first place? So having travelled abroad, eventually returning home, you're viewed with suspicion. And similarly, people from other countries who move to England, one of the things we really realised building up the lexicon for keywords is how many granular words there are to describe different types of, of strangers or aliens or people who live in England. There are lots of very small categories. So it, it's been... a a source of really quite deep fascination, I think, that tension, trying to examine exactly how people lived. Did you want to add anything, Tom? Sorry. Yeah, I thought I'd just jump in and say, yeah, it's that, I mean, I think throughout our conversation today, this word tension is going to come up a lot, as as is probably the word anxiety. We, we, We use it frequently. I think going back, going back to moving between countries and, and languages and cultures, and this is something that I, we'll discuss later on when, when we talk about our, uh, our forthcoming book. It really depends on who's moving, where they're going to, what language they speak, which kind of cultural framework they operate within as well. So the people that I look at, for example, the Italians, they, uh, <laughs> they are for the most part very wealthy economic migrants. They're merchants, they're financiers, they're, they are, they're kind of skilled liberal artisans who went to England because they had skills that the English, the, the English state valued, English people valued. Like Emily was saying, this was a, the, the English were very conscious of the fact that they were viewed as this kind of parochial backwater. So they were very encouraging of, of having this, this kind of these knowledge gatherers come to England and and you know bring with them new modes of, of civility and and uh, new skills and new knowledge um, but at the same time there's also these other great movements of, of say like religious refugees Dutch and French religious refugees thousands who would come over to England in, in the mid 16th century and they were often far poorer they did not have the same kind of connections as these Italians did. Their experience of of moving between countries and moving between cultures was very, very different to, say, a group like the Italians. But, I mean, that's that's something that we'll definitely pick up on later. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because I think it does come as a bit of a surprise to some people that London, especially at this time, and and other cities are very multicultural. There are people from lots of different countries residing, working, as you say, 
And those merchants that you've mentioned are incredibly valued at the Tudor court. They they kind of build the props of magnificence, don't they, for the court? And yeah. So you've touched, I suppose, on this a little bit, but maybe if we can talk a little bit more about how other nations and other cultures and other religions were viewed at the time. And I know this is a massive sort of question (laughs) I'm asking you, but maybe just a taste, I suppose. Well, yeah, I mean, it is it is a great question. And I think it's the, the question at the heart, one of the questions at the heart of the project anyway, it is, of course, a very, very complex one, just as it is today. I think hmm, I, I think it's it's important to, to kind of start by noting that although the early modern English, they had a very strong sense of their, their ancient shared heritage, the idea of, of, of the nation as a united territory with, with a, a common consciousness that was expressed in a, in a common language and culture, that didn't really gain currency until the 19th century um, and the, the advent of, of what we refer to as the nation state. Now that that's not to say it all gets quite murky here. That, that's not to say that that, that nationality or national difference uh, wasn't a thing. So so particularly in in a kind of like physiological school of thought, national character was seen as a product of climate and heritage. So the Italians were were you know stereotypically quick tempered, they're jealous and they're and they're vengeful, for example. I guess it's it's rather to say that there, there was no rhetorically constructed single national will, you know, that, that was enforcing conformity and allegiance to, to your country, to the soil of your birth in this period. People were far more likely, um, and London's a great example of this, where they're far more likely to envisage their own place in the world in relation to, say, a corporate structure. So, you know, they're, they're, whether they belong to a guild, a particular guild, or they would conceptualise their place um, or envisage their own place rather in, in terms of allegiance to a monarch or a powerful local family. That's something that we have to remember, even though that, you know, the Tudor period was this great period of centralisation of power. The Northern Lords still had, still held humongous power. Um, and they would be able to rise, you know, um, rise an army to wage war if, if they needed to, because people in these areas, they would have a sense of allegiance to the local family, which is obviously tied up to having allegiance to the, to the region in which you lived and conceptualising your place in the world in terms of the region where you resided or where you worked and worshipped, especially. Then at the same time, this, there is a sense of, of English nationhood. Uh, it's going back and forth here, but there is this sense of English nationhood that, that was found emerging in this period um, as, as reformation and expansionism. So as England went out into the world in a kind of co- commercial, colonial way, that, that necessitated a new unifying identity marker that galvanised people against Rome in support of the monarch and, and the, the English state. And, it, you know, the, this sense of English nationhood arose also in, in response to England's imperial ambitions at the time and to conceptualise their place in the world in response to the, this kind of increased cross-cultural encounter as people were going out to the world, but also as more people were coming into England at the same time. We can, we can kind of understand this complexity by looking at migration into England, which is a great, great one for me to talk about. Uh, broadly speaking, in the in the 16th century, the, the, the crown and the city had 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 very different relationships to migrants. This is this is not uniform, by the way, but broadly speaking, different relationships to migrants. So the crown recognised the economic and cultural benefit of migration, like we just spoke about. Um, that they, you know, that anxiety over over you know its reputation for for parochialism. The city, on the other hand was conscious of especially trade infringements by the influx of skilled artisans. So we should remember that cities like London, London was a corporation, 
it was made up of a series of guilds that all obviously all practiced different trades and those guilds had a direct role in the governance of the city. So when suddenly lots of migrants come in, people who do not belong to the guilds, every guild is a monopoly, it owns a monopoly on that trade. When these, when this influx of skilled artisans came in, the guilds were threatened, economically threatened. So so what you see in this period is that there's, there's several kind of anti-migrant petitions delivered to the Lord Mayor and the Privy Council, and they all contain very hauntingly familiar arguments. You know, these things don't change. The migrants, they don't speak the language. They steal our jobs. They live in squalor and increase the crime rates. They take up the best houses. I'm not sure how you can match that with the previous one, but they managed to. And they intermarry and they don't integrate. So there is this tension there. And, you know, there are several, this 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 erupts into violence several times throughout the period. Um, the most famous being the infamous Il Mayday riot of 1517, when artisans actually kind of ran through the city, raised parts of the city to, you know, in, in opposition to, to the kind of migrant presence in these areas. So there is that, there is that violence and there is that hostility. And there is also legis legislative hostility as well. Like the migrant communities are often legislated against. But at the same time, again, London's relationship with strangers, with, with migrants was complex whilst they were periodically legislated against and there were these moments of violence. And often we have to remember that violence doesn't survive in the records. That's important. We have, we have these, these anti-migrant anti petitions, but that everyday violence very rarely survives in the records. So it's, so it's quite difficult to, to really get the heart of what it was like to be a migrant living in London in the period. At the same time though, that London had a very long history of migration and migrants were part of the fabric. And a great example, and I think that this illustrates this perfectly, the coronation processions through the city of London that would take place on the day of a new monarch's investment. And these, this, would, this was happening for hundreds of years. And we have an account of Mary the, Mary the First, Mary Tudor's coronation procession through London. And it's very, very detailed. And it tells us that Mary left the Tower of London in the morning and she travels up into, into the city onto Fenchurch Street. And, and as she goes through the city along this route, she's met with loads of spectacles and pageants and celebrations that were organised by the city uh, and, and funded by the city. When she gets onto Fenchurch Street, the, first, the very first thing that she is greeted by is a pageant that was paid for and organised by London's Genoese community. That's the first thing that she, she comes into contact with. The second thing, when she moves down Fenchurch Street and gets to this area called the Four Corners, is a pageant organised by the Hanseatic League, by the Hansard merchants, who had been trading there for, I think, nearly 100 years at this point, over 100 years. So that's the second thing she comes into. She then goes up Bishopsgate Street, and the third thing she comes, <laughs> she comes across is this this pageant organised by the Florentines, right? And this goes on and she goes down Cornhill and she's met by a very, very well-funded, <laughs> put it that way, um, spectacle organised by the Dutch who were living in the city at the same time. We have to remember that, like I said, the city of London was responsible for, for organising this pageantry. They were working with the migrants to stage this. And this, this procession was not just a celebration of the monarch, it, it played an important political role. It was to remind the monarch that, you know, the city, which is a semi, if not independent jurisdiction in this period, it's to remind the monarch of the city's relationship to the crown and also the significance of the city to the prosperity, the economic and cultural prosperity 
of England. And it is the migrants who are the, who are the first people that Mary comes into contact with. And that's important because these weren't just randomly placed. This wasn't just a random order. These areas in which these pageants were performed were of historic significance to these communities. So the Genoese have been living in this area on Fenchurch Street for hundreds of years. For the Hanseatic merchants, they lived in a privileged area called the Still Yard, just down the road, just in Billingsgate, down the road from the Four Corners. And the same goes for the Florentines. They had resided in that area for hundreds of years as well. So what we see here is the London authorities stressing to the Crown that migration to England is integral to the prosperity, the economic and cultural prosperity of the country. Very complex. <laughs> <laughs> I think you did a brilliant job. What a fascinating insight. I, I, there was so much there that my brain's kind of going a bit crazy at the moment, trying to, <laughs> to kind of digest it all. And I, I'm just so many things popping into my head. But I just feel like this feels like such a sort of fresh lens with which to look at this period. And, and I'm kind of wondering how this is affecting people on individual levels. And there's so many questions. So that that was really fantastic. I really enjoyed that. And, and a great example of what you were, a very complex issue that you were trying to explain. So what would also be, I think, really interesting is to hear about some of the, the keywords and the terms that you found during your, your research and your teaching as well. I think the most common one, um, you probably heard both say a few times already, which sounds quite strange out of context, which is stranger, so alien stranger. So one of the things that we really noticed going through the keywords is that there are, because when the, the three postdocs kind of wrote the list of keywords and debated back and forth and decided which ones to focus on. And from what we've heard, there were very tentious arguments about exactly which ones to include. And it all became very <laughs> fractious very quickly. But quite a few of the words are still in common use today, but in slightly different inflections. So stranger in the period is the term that's used, which is quite broadly, to describe individuals who reside in another country from the one they were born in. Uh, and it's interchangeable with alien and the two get kind of conflated as alien stranger in various records. Uh, but the word foreigner is also used, which is what, the word that we would more commonly use today in that context. But in the 16th century, it's used more to refer to spiritual foreigners. So this inflection of religious strangeness or domestic migrants who move within England to different parishes or counties. So uh, Shakespeare is a foreigner within London when he moves from Stratford. So there are all these different kind of niceties of strangeness and alien and foreignness that become really vital, as Tom was saying, for how these communities work and move within cities. And then there are the two more technical terms, uh, citizen and denizen. So citizen is someone who's inhabitant in a city or a town as today. And it's strongly influenced by Greek and Roman ideals of civic traditions and like Tom was talking about collective and corporate bodies. But the word denizen is one that comes up very frequently, which really isn't in common usage. And one postdoc on, on the Tide project, Haig Smith has become kind of the expert on all these different inflections of denizen. So denizen means a migrant who has been granted specific rights by the crown to settle in the country. So it's somewhere between native and stranger uh, and in the period, it's, it's most commonly used as a status for merchants in recognition of the wealth and trade that they bring into the country. So we've, we had all of those you know, technical terms about belonging and how you belong. But then there were also, I think we've, we've only briefly touched on it, but the idea of religious difference is another really important one. So we have keywords on uh, Jew, Mohammedan, Turk, which were quite, they were difficult to write because 
obviously the Enron period being a period of such intense religious debates and quite cruel debate as well. It can be, it was difficult to write those terms in a way that made them useful for scholars, I think, without just repeating some of the, the arguments and texts. So the idea of turning Turk is something that when the English start travelling to the Levant and Turkey and regions, they become quite threatened by the idea of English Protestant Christians converting to Islam when they travel abroad. So then the idea of turning Turk develops that you might travel to these countries and then be turned into Turk. So it has slightly different inflections from Mahometan, again, all these different quite granular levels where I think, I don't know how you feel, Tom, but difficult to unpick they all work together it's very difficult to take one keyword out without kind of disturbing the nest that that's exactly it isn't it that's something that i, I, I was i was thinking about there was that you know we, we have these terms that seem very say legal so stranger and denison they were they were legal constructs right but at the same time emily was talking about the the kind of religious content in this book what we see in the period is these legal terms stranger denison they start to become wrapped up in a, in a religious polemic at the same time. And this goes back to what I was, what I was just speaking about and ideas of, you know, how, how, did, how did the English see other religions in this period? So following, following the, the break from Rome, you start to see more ardent reformers refer to Catholics, people who, who conformed to the, the Roman church started to be referred to as spiritual strangers. So they were being excluded. They were being excluded on the basis that they did not uh, conform to the church. The church obviously being headed by the monarch in this period. So that legal term has evolved there to, to be referred to those who did not conform. At the same time, I mentioned these Protestant refugees. One of the key arguments for why these Dutch Calvinists and these French Huguenots should be allowed into the, into the country to settle was because they were spiritual natives. They were part of a Protestant tradition, right? And say Edward VI, for example, obviously far more fervently Protestant than, than his father. Under Edward's very short reign, there was this geared up drive to, to reform the church, to establish a reformed church. And Edward actually established stranger churches in the period. So there was an Italian church or, or an early version of an Italian church and a Dutch church and a French church in London that were, that were founded in this period to encourage migration, to encourage French Huguenots, Dutch Calvinists to come to England and further cement the reformed tradition there. And I mean, I think earlier on, you mentioned Thomas Cromwell, yes. uh, Thomas Cromwell's house at, at Boston <laughs> Friars, that became the Dutch church. So, so yeah, these, these words evolve. And as Emily said, it's difficult to pick them apart. They all intersect and taking one of them out and discussing one of them as, as just on its own, as one term, is, is, it feels very difficult to do. Maybe we've just spent too much time for Emily, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, no, maybe I, five I, years is too long. Five years. Wow, five <laughs> years. Okay, well, that, that's a nice segue to my next question. I, I would be interested <laughs> to know how these five years or, or however long you've spent, obviously you're, you're very passionate about your work. I can see that and I can hear that. How has it informed your own research or teaching? And mm. actually, let's look at that one first. Yeah, how has it informed your, your own research and your teaching? 
Great. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll start there, Emily, if that's all right. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but um, I, I, I would have written a completely different PhD <laughs> were it not for keywords um, for several reasons, for, for the ideas that I was being introduced to and particular terms like alien and stranger. So my work was looking at the migration of a, of a type of theatre and how it was being received in England during the period. And were it not for these the ideas of stranger and strangeness, that, that we were handling in the keywords, I wouldn't have got um, used the same framework, intellectual framework as I did for that research. In general terms, though, I'd say it's, it's removed any of that, 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 that lingering rigidity in, in how I approach the period, right? And, and especially the, the, the spiritual and social and cultural dynamics. And we, like I said, we use this word anxiety a lot when describing this period, but I think it's a very useful term to encapsulate what was going on. It was a, it was a, it was a time of great upheaval, right? Of, of, of fear or anxiety over encroaching strangeness or unwanted change, be that legal or religious or cultural. But it's also a time of excitement at new encounters, right? At, at new ways of engaging with the world, new types of literary and dramatic and intellectual models for, for cultural production, for, for exploring our world and our place in it. And the tensions in language that keywords uncovers, that, that tension in usage and how that usage develops uh, and changes over time. It really opens up, I guess, what we might refer to as the, 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 the kind of complex mixedness of this period, right? The everyday reality of cultures existing in close proximity. And I think this is why it's a useful term, useful tool, sorry, not, not just for researchers, but, you know, for, for learning about the period at, at school, in college, at, 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 you know, at undergraduate, or just, you know, just out of interest. We, we have this image of the past, and I think largely because the demographic have traditionally chronicled or, or written the histories over the centuries, they, they, you know, they have a particular imperative. And, and we have this image of the past that was, was, you know, very white, very insular, very oppressive towards women. This is, of course, very reductive, right? And this is something that, that this volume explores. If you study history or humanities at university like I did, you, you, you're probably growing frustrated by, you know, big red comments, reading, avoid sweeping generalizations, okay? <laughs> I, I remember that well. And I think if that's the case, that th this work will really help you figure out some of those complexities. And it, and it, it definitely has for me. As for teaching, yeah, it's, it's a great pedagogical tool. So one of my preferred in class exercises involves assigning pairs or individual students, depending on the numbers, a keyword right at the beginning of each term. And I ask them to make a note of usage as we read through a, whatever, you know, the, the selection of texts uh, and plays uh, and delve into key contexts over the following weeks. And then in our final session, I have each pair present a 10 minute paper on their assigned term. And they, they use the skills and kind of uh, in their, their analytical skills gained through their studies over, over the, the, the past few weeks to, to map the differences and developments and usage throughout the period. And what you end up with are striking and oftentimes like very eye opening bits of research that, that don't attempt to deliver a solid straight answer, which I think is often what we drive for our undergraduate, isn't it? It's the pursuit of, a, of an answer. But, you know, rather they just they just highlight these tensions. And that's that, that's great. They show the the degree of upheaval, of anxiety, of excitement in this period. It's I, I think is a really useful exercise for for getting people to to 
understand that complexity. Absolutely. I think those three words apply beautifully to the entire period. Mm. I, you know, I know I've been looking closely. I've just finished a book about the final 18 months of Anne Boleyn's life. And, and I can tell you that they completely and utterly apply to those 18 months as well. Anxiety, turmoil, and quite a lot of excitement in there as well. So it's fascinating. Yeah. Emily, did you want to say anything about um, how that's affected your research and teaching? Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I think similarly to Tom, because when we joined the project, the keywords, the first kind of drafts of the essays had been written. And our first big piece of work on the project was uploading them into a database. So before the keywords were available in a book, we hosted them on a database on the type website for about two years and shared that very widely, which was brilliant because it meant we had opinions from other researchers, also students and people who'd read the keywords through and had advice on how they could be changed or inflected. So it's very, it's a very collaborative work and I think from the very beginning of the PhD for us it modeled the idea of collaborative research and communication it's impossible to to think of my PhD thesis without the keywords partly because those ideas of connection and community were really vital to my approach but also just because it's the intellectual model that we've worked with and it does feel knowing the keywords so well having read through those entries hundreds of times sometimes it feels like mental footnotes when you read an early modern text and you see a word like stranger or citizen it gives you this knowledge of the backstory like suddenly seeing the footnote appear under the text um, and recognizing it and I think particularly as we were saying earlier because some of these words are still used today but in very slightly different meanings having access to just the knowledge that there's alternates there that there's a more inflected history has been really vital. Um, and I, as, as just as Tom does, I really love using them in teaching, partly because the book is freely available and open access as well. Uh, so it's really easy to share and students don't have to pay anything to access it. You can just send them individual examples of keywords. I very rarely send a student a single keyword essay without them wanting to read more, which is hugely encouraging from our perspective. They really are a very useful tool. And in terms of public engagement, obviously you do a lot of teaching at university. How have you used keywords in order to engage a little more with the general public? They've been uh, the bedrock, I think, of one of the most exciting pieces of work throughout the TIE project. So in 2019, we, along with the Running Me Trust, we launched a scheme of teachers' fellowships, or the Beacon Teachers' Fellowships, which were focused on developing resources uh, with secondary school teachers for teaching race and empire and migration in schools. And we used the keywords as a way into that. So providing teachers with a keyword and then some associated early modern texts and talking to them about how they would use those to teach these issues in secondary schools mostly. And then we, along with the Renamy Trust, wrote a report on that work that we presented at Parliament in 2019, uh, which feels like a slightly different world now. But it does, yeah. That was hugely, it was great fun for us and really important, I think, to see how academic work can have a real world impact, you know, removed from the universities. And then that work has become attraction, which is teaching uh, race, belonging, empire and migration which is a second project uh, run by Nandini Daz, RPI, which focuses on developing further these resources for secondary teachers and creating a platform that will help teachers feel confident in teaching these issues in schools. Um, and we, we worked on the 16th and 17th century 
traction material. Uh, again, using the keywords as a, a key way in. So they've been a really great way of communicating with teachers, particularly because they offer this really useful kind of early insight into the complexity of the period. Uh, they've also been really useful to use on social media because it's freely open access. We've seemed to tweet constantly for about three years and receive lots of tweets from people who are using the keywords, who are interested in reading them. The Tide Twitter account has been on fire seemingly endlessly. Absolutely. So so if maybe somebody's listening and they're interested in learning more about those materials that you've been discussing, it, is it the Tide website that they should go to? Is it the best place? Yeah, the Tide website has keywords buttons, I think, on the main page. Uh, and yeah, if you search Tide keywords, they come up. And there's more exciting things happening because um, you have another volume coming out soon, I believe, Lives in Transit. Can you tell us a bit about this work? Yeah, so Lives in Transit. So it's, it's a companion volume and it's a, it's a collection to a companion volume of uh, keywords. And it's, it's a collection of, of 34, is it, Emily? 30, yeah. so yes, yes, I'm just, Emily's nodding. 34 case studies on transcultural figures, so lives in between in early modern England. And where, where keywords, you know, as we've spoken about, it explores that terminology around belonging and difference and uh, warning is that word again tensions <laughs> the tensions that arose in in usage and response to travel and migration and cross-cultural encounters lives in transit offers a glimpse into the i guess the everyday realities you know this tension in practice right so they're not strictly biographies but rather they, they explore an aspect of that person's identity maybe like a, a transcultural aspect of that person's identity or their how they, they they might have negotiated a place for themselves throughout their lives when they're away from home or you know even even just a single moment in time when they were forced to to, to navigate the the exclusionary parameters of, of belonging in the period um so there are much more kind of focused exercise in in a in applying what, what we've uncovered through keywords to you know the everyday lives the everyday reality of people who who were, were living in between in this period i believe the contributors all wrote about individuals from very different backgrounds and places with you know different legal structures so how did all these differences as well as i suppose there must have been some similarities shape your approach the way that we chose the figures it now seems quite random to look back. We made a spreadsheet full of all the people that we thought would be interesting. And then we held discussion groups and, and whittled it down. There is a real mix. So we have some royal figures in there. We have Catherine of Baganza and Anna of Denmark. And then we have some figures uh, like Michael Peter Pope and Corrie the Saldanian, about whom there is very little recorded evidence. And it was quite important to us when we wrote the case studies, not to just take that straightforward biographical approach. So like Tom was saying, to try and find an angle in using the keywords and thinking about these concepts. Uh, but it, it's still, it's easier in some cases than others. So writing about you know, two royal women is, in a way, it's much easier because the resources are there. There are archival materials and portraits. I would kill for portraits of some of the people I've written about. It would be lovely to see their faces. <laughs> but equally, that means that for those figures, there's an established history of scholarship and you have to counter that. We were, I remember a discussion group on Catherine of Baganza reading some previous criticism written about her that was criticising the fact she never had children, saying that she failed as a queen. And I remember getting really riled up about it because it's, uh, it's not a useful historical approach. So trying to counter those perspectives, I think, was difficult at times. And the other um, thing to note is that the Tide project has always been a very consciously interdisciplinary one. 
So Tom and I are both primarily trained as literary historians. Uh, and then we also have three postdoctoral researchers on the project who are historians first and foremost and at times there were differences in how we'd approach the figure so every year we had a visiting writer on the project and I remember one of our visiting writers uh, Preeti Tanasia said you you must feel so connected to these people you must feel like you know them like you you know their stories and you can kind of imagine what they were doing and I think the three historians reacted quite instinctively saying no we can't we shouldn't try and make these details up whereas Tom and I were a bit more flexible with well you know we can be inspired. We've read so much. We can we can imagine it. And I, I don't think that necessarily leads into any kind of prescriptivism in your approach. But it was a really useful insight into the different ways that we've approached writing these case studies and thinking about how we know them and what the material can give you. Did you want to yeah. add anything, Tom? Yeah, I mean, just to kind of yeah uh, emphasize what what Emily was saying that that uh, that meeting with. Preeti was 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 so eye-opening. I, I'd say for my my personally, my research, probably the most important thing, or one of the most significant things that that's happened <laughs> for me over the last five years, even. It was, it was you know, we all we were all sat around in a circle, like Emily was saying. Preeti saying, like, you know, oh wow, that you 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 can use your imagination. You know, that's what creative writers do. You use your imagination to fill in those gaps, to fill in those silences in the archive. And all of us, even Emily and I, I mean, whilst we're, yeah. we're way more kind of open to it, I think. Um, even we, we, you know, immediately the guard goes up. And we're yeah. like, no, 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 we are historians. You cannot do that. We deal with the, you know, the archives, the records, the facts. That that's what we deal with. And that's of course that's not remotely the case, is it? That, that not even slightly. And and working on these case studies, like Emily said, where many of them leave such fragmentary records, but not just fragmentary records, but also these records are often mediated by English pens or voices and they have a very a very set agenda right so we that's something that we also have to navigate and I think letting your you know there is a space for imagination there there is a space for trying to uncover the hidden stories for you know uh, amplifying those fragmentary records and and um yeah we're trying to remove the silences i'm mean, emily your work on Corey the saldanian is is marvelous there, there's there's very few records of this person and emily does an incredible job of talking about that as an issue you know we're not trying to construct a biography of Corey here we're addressing the fact that these records are fragmentary and that's difficult and that's something that we have to come to terms with and we have to think about and not just, you know, brush under the carpet and attempt to construct a life from these few surviving documents that, you know, exist in, in disparate archives and disparate places. So you've, you've mentioned, obviously, a few of the individuals that you feature in this book. So can you maybe tell us about a couple more? I'm really curious now. And, and also what insights it offers us about their life and what life was like for them. Obviously, you know, there's the challenges you've mentioned, but but what does it tell us? Yeah, I'm, well, that, that's it. I mean, like I said, I work on the Italians. So <laughs> mine have, uh, a, for the most part, a very different experience of life in London than, than you know, other migrants. But at the same time, if these, like, we, like we, we've said there, if, the, if these case studies do anything, they highlight the, the hidden complexities of race and gender and heritage 
to how people navigated belonging in this period, right? And one of the people I look at is Mark Anthony Bassano. And he is a second generation. He's the, ch- he's the child of, of two Venetians who moved to London because, you know, oh, what's that? The, the English want Italian musicians and there's a chance for us to be highly paid. Let's go over. So the Bassanos go over and Mark Anthony, he is, he's born in London. And he has, I think he has four or five brothers. I can't remember off the top of my head. So Mark Antony is, you know, he's brought up to speak Italian, to kind of perform this Italian civility, to to perform Italian music, because that's exactly uh, what the court wants. That's exactly what his parents do. But at the same time, his life is very, very different from his parents. He's born in London. He's a Cockney. He speaks English like a Cockney while speaking Italian like an Italian. He has English friends. He goes to the English parish church. He marries an English woman. He is someone who exists in between. And what my case study on Mark Antony focused on was was how the children of strangers, you know, how do they navigate that place? How how do you find a place for yourself when you, you have such a strong sense of heritage, of your cultural heritage, whilst living with in a completely different place and being kind of existing within a completely different culture and there's there's an episode in Mark Antony's life where he is he's walking just outside of London with some friends and one of them is an English weaver and the other two are Italian glass workers who work in the city and they're walking past a group of soldiers and Mark Antony turns to his Italian friends and he says something in Italian and the soldiers go bananas they think that they're being insulted and a whole thing erupts and there's a there's a fight and Mark Antony barely makes his escape um, from these these soldiers who went on to defend their actions because they thought he was Spanish, uh, which <laughs> you know opens up a lot of the kind of uh, hostility yes, that, that uh, yeah. Mediterranean people faced in this period. There are two very different accounts of this fight. One of them paints Mark Antony in a very pious light, you know, he turns the other cheek and the other is a bit more hostile and says Mark Antony throws his hat to the ground and he, he insults them and calls them all these sort all these horrible names in Italian. Not only is it, it a fascinating insight into those moments of hostility, those everyday moments of violence that, that I spoke about before that, that rarely survive, right? Not only is it a fascinating example of that, very detailed example of that, it also goes to, sh- again, highlight the hidden complexities because this survives for a reason. This record survives because Mark Antony was connected with the court. When this happened, he goes straight to the Privy Council. He goes straight to William Cecil, Francis Walsingham, and he complains. And that's why these accounts survive, because they were then dragged up to the Lord Mayor's court in London, and they were forced, and and his his people, uh, witnesses were forced to testify, right? How often must that have happened where people didn't have that kind of political leverage, right? So whilst, you know, Mark Antony was a very privileged person and did live a very privileged life in many ways, he was also subjected to the same kind of hostility, the same kind of violence as other strangers and other children of strangers in the period. And I, that's just, it's such a, a useful record for just just reminding yourself of that. Emily, did you have someone that you wanted to tell us about? Yeah, well, it's uh, I think it's as Tom was saying, part of how we we chose these case studies and who we decided to focus on uh, was dictated by quite a lot by our research interests. So 
I was originally going to write a case study on Alberico Gentili, who was an Italian religious refugee who was a professor of law at Oxford, a hugely influential professor of law. And when I started reading through the material, I'm not an illegal historian by any means. And I couldn't approach it from that angle. And there's been plenty of material written about Alberico Gentili. Uh, but there was nothing on his wife, who was called Esther de Payne, who was a French religious refugee. She was only ever referred to in historical kind of criticism as Gentili's Huguenot wife, and then completely dismissed. So I became, I think, quite personally invested in trying to find out more about her and dig into the biographical details. And there was some really, really fascinating insights. So she was a widow, uh, quite young, because Alberico died after about 20 years of marriage. And as soon as he died, she travelled to Paris to fight a legal battle over some property, none of which had been recorded before. And she had five children who were named after various figures of their influence network. And then in her will, she gave some of them more money than others, depending on how much they'd recently displeased her. So she was a really fascinating woman to try and uncover. And I think the other important thing to note about our case studies, as, as Tom has kind of touched on already, is that their experiences of England were not wholly positive. And that was quite important for us to recognise as well when we were researching these figures and writing about them. So one of my favourite figures in the collection, and a case study written by Lorraine Working, one of the postdocs is uh, Luisa de Carvajal, who was a Spanish noblewoman who travelled to England essentially to try and become a martyr for Catholicism. So she set up a church in her house in London. She was inviting people in all the time. She wrote in a letter that only to please God can one tolerate living in London, which is very strong words. Yeah. She would hunt down the bodies of people who had been recently killed in religious persecution and try and make relics from them. An incredibly intense woman and really fascinating. And so much of the previous scholarship on her as has focused on her difficulties and you know what was she doing what was she thinking it was really important I think to have a case study in the collection that took from approach of do this was a passion project for her you know, how did she move within London as a Catholic figure deliberately using that status to try and gain some kind of religious effect she's really endlessly fascinating Louisa de Carvajal but I think so many of them are that sounds uh, amazing yeah absolutely amazing uh, Emily, I realised I did that terrible thing earlier when you spend so much time on a piece of work that you forget that not everybody else knows all about it. And I spoke about, and I'm going to stitch you up here, and I mentioned Corey the Saldanian and didn't expand on that at all. I mean, do you want to, I mean, this is one you wrote, so I wouldn't want to butcher, butcher the story, but I mean, it might be worth talking about Corey. Well, he's a very good um, example of how you approach writing about someone where there's very little known. Um, so these completely, these marginalised communities. So Corey is from Saldania Bay in Southern Africa, and he's brought over to England, forcibly kidnapped by East India Company merchants. And in the English records, all that survives related to Corey is the occasional references. So when he's brought back to England, the story goes that he lies down on the floor of the East India Company director's house and they try and teach him English. And he beats the floor shouting, Cory home, go, Cory Saldania, go. It's heartbreaking. And the English use this in their records as an example of there's no point bringing these people to England because they don't appreciate the gift of English that we're giving them. And eventually they take him back to Saldania Bay where he becomes this cultural intermediary. So he uses the knowledge that he's gained in England of English trading routes and priorities to get better deals for his family and his friends. So the English then start 
bitterly regretting that they'd ever brought him over to London. They say, you know, we've made a terrible mistake. When I started writing this case study, um, it was really important for me to acknowledge, and I think that that's all the knowledge that we currently have of him. And it's all in English and it's all mediated through what these writers wanted us to take away. You know, the impression that we get today is obviously a very different one than what they intended, but we're still gaining this mediated knowledge. And there was one book in particular that was really influential on my approach, which uh, is by MTS Abibs called Black Lives in the English Archives. And he talks about this concept of the imprints of the invisible. So when these people are invisible in the historical records and we see one tiny imprint in the archive, it's really important to recognize that what we're seeing is an imprint. We're not getting the full picture. You have to somehow work with both what you have and what you recognize you don't have. Uh, so the Cory, the Cory case study was a really good example of trying to work through that approach. But there are other figures in the collection as well. So Peter Pope, who is this young boy who was brought back to England from Bengal, is another figure about whom everything in English is known through mediated English knowledge. And then one of the most, the most famous examples uh, is Pocahontas. So Lorraine Working wrote a case study on Pocahontas, which uses the Algonquin oral histories to offer a corrective to the English critical history of Pocahontas. So even when a figure is more well known, it quite often transpired that actually what we thought we knew wasn't the full story. Trying to find alternate sources for those histories was really vital. I actually cannot wait to go and read those case studies. It sounds absolutely amazing. I imagine I'm not alone and that all our listeners will hopefully also feel the same as I do. So you have touched on quite a bit about your approach when it comes to writing about groups of which we know very little about. But I just wanted to know if there's anything else you wanted to say about that. And also, has it had an effect on the way that you yourselves now view marginalised communities? I think it's made me much more aware in my, my wider academic research of trying to account for perspectives, which is something that I think you're trained to do anyway. But it's, the linguistic mediation is so important. It's particularly because on, on the project, we have a host of languages spoken between everybody. Um, Joao one of the other postdocs, is from Lisbon. So we would quite often turn to him, can you just translate this Portuguese for me? But recognising that limitation has been really important, that when we're reading sources in English, there's a reason that they're in English and there's so much that might be missing. And I think partly from our work on keywords, but also with sharing these case studies, making sure to make space to listen to people's stories and histories particularly when we're working on such sensitive material or occasionally such sensitive terminology yeah making sure that we recognize that this is academic work and we're talking about 16th century terms but they have modern resonance as well and we have to be aware of that emily said recognizing your limitations and i mean that that's any any good history you know any good historian that you, you need to recognize your limitations you know your limitations in perspective and also maybe in skills in languages you know there's a there's a whole historiography written about migration that has maybe potentially lean lean too heavily on english sources primarily english sources and that that just removes an entirely a rich perspective from from your work and you only really get part of the picture don't you it's a, it's a puzzle you, you, it's a puzzle when you've only really got a few pieces in place that's it and, and like Emily said listening I think is a big thing is 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 learning to to kind of listen and realize that the work that we do as historians it isn't neutral 
it has political and cultural significance and impact. And I'm not trying to overstate the importance of, of our role or what we do, but it does have a real world impact. It frames how, you know, how you frame the past informs how people think about the present. So I agree there. Yeah, I think that's a, a wonderful note in which to bring our chat to a conclusion. And it has been so incredibly fascinating. I feel like I have a lot to reflect on. So I thank you both very much for sharing your time and your expertise. But there is one more thing. I can't let you go just yet. There is one more thing. And my listeners would get very upset if I forget this. And that is for our Tudor takeaway. So something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. Do you have a Tudor takeaway? Well, I mean, I feel like we've sufficiently... <laughs> Shipped, uh, we're greedy here, we're greedy, Tom. Uh, <laughs> so I would say, for me, as uh, you know, I, I, I study London, I, I, I love London, and I love being in London, and I think experiencing a space in which the, the space that you write about is is so eye-opening, and it, and it just informs your research, and it tells you so much more about the period. And for me, and this is probably, uh, it's, it's quite an old tool now, but it's, and it's probably something that a lot of, lot of your listeners would be familiar with, but the, the map of early modern London. Uh, the, the map of early modern London is an interactive uh, online map, and it's, it's, the, it's, a, it's a woodcut perspective map of London, which is called the Agass map, um, dating from the, the 1560s. And you can click on various bits of the map and it will tell you, you know, what was there, whether it was a, a tavern, a victualling house, a street, a parish church. And it links you to all this material about that particular uh, place or space or, or building. And looking at that map, you realise that the city of London looks basically the same as it did in the 16th century. Most of these streets still survive, right? And you can... You can trace, you can go to London, you can go to the city. And I've, I've done this several times with this map and you can walk around and you can click on buildings and you can see what would have been here in the 16th century and you get a sense of the space. And it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to do. If you're ever in London, if you're ever down near Liverpool Street or wherever, then I would highly recommend getting the, the map of early modern London up on your phone and, 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 and going for a walk. Yes, taking a walk in Tudor London. I love it. I love it. Emily, sorry, did you have one as well? I'm not, not so oh, sure. Yes. Um, after after great, great deliberation. Um, <laughs> mine would be a quite specific, but also upsetting abroad, um, poesy rings, which are rings particularly very popular in the 16th century that have mottos or little sentences engraved on the inside. Uh, so people would be wearing those lines theoretically close to their heart because they're wearing them on, on the fingers and you can see pictures of early modern poetry rings the the vna has a very good collection and very uh, well digitized the ashmolean in oxford has a huge collection as well but i i love them because so many of these rings they're dug up from the ground or they're pulled out of the thames by mudlarkers and we have no idea of their provenance or their history we only know roughly when they're from but they are these tiny little fragments of lines that had huge significance to people in the period, just everyday lives. And I really love the sense of seeing what was important to people, that you can, you can get a perspective on the things that were most important to people 500 years ago from something so small and simple. I think it's very universal. So I would recommend 
looking up pictures of those. Another brilliant takeaway. You have absolutely spoiled us. We've got so much to to think about and look at and explore. So thank you both so much for talking tutors with us. Thank you so much for having us. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.